appreciate the suggestions, um, but I, I would ask you to be praying for those folks as they are getting everything organized. Um, the leader has stepped up to go ahead and start that, um, and others have said, yeah, I'll, I'll help. Just let me know what to do. So be praying for all of them because our desire with that is not to get the kids out of the way so that we can focus. It's we want to help everyone draw closer to Christ. Um, and kids are, are at a different level than adults are. And so we want to give them a time when they can study God's word that's a little bit different than what we're doing out here, um, but where they can focus in. They're going to be doing some Bible memory time. They're going to be doing some, possibly some songs and singing, and I'm not positive what all else, but um, I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to, to having that as, a, as an option. Um, so hopefully, my goal is that all of us, whether we're young or old, just turned two, or just turned 102. I don't think we have any of those. But, huh? oh, what, right there with, <laughs> no matter what age we are, the goal, our desire, is that we draw closer to Christ. Um, and so, I'm excited about that. Like I said, um, they're still getting it finished up, but we are hoping to start first week of April. So, um, if you are one of the ones who has said, yeah, I'll help as soon as that's organized, talk to John because I'm pointing everybody at him rather than me. But um, if you want to help, our goal is that you only have to be in there, you know, like one week and then off for the rest of the month type of an idea so that nobody gets too burned out doing that either. As much as I enjoy working with kids, I understand it can be tiring. So um, that's coming up, and I'm excited about it. Well, we have been in our study of First Timothy now for almost half the book. Uh, this actually marks the halfway point, and so I'm I'm excited for this week because as I as I look through it, it's almost as if it's it's coming to a a major idea, a major concept that Paul wants people to understand before we then continue on and finish out uh, the book and the process. So. One of the things that I'd like to do today is just a little bit of a brief review and go back and, okay, what, what have we looked at? What have we talked about? What have we already covered? And then, um, like I said, this section actually has some really cool stuff in it as well that we're going to dig into. So there's, there's kind of two, two sections to it, um, and hopefully we'll be able to cover all of that. But before we do that, let me pray for us one more time, and then I will read our passage today. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for who you are. Lord, help our thoughts and our minds be focused on you. Lord, help us draw closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Only three verses. That doesn't mean that it's going to be a short one. Just saying. <clears throat> I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." The, the first thing that stands out to me in that is that Paul says, I'm hoping to come to you quickly. I'm 
hoping to come to you soon. Now, I don't think that Paul's making a big deal out of this. You, you all know Isaac likes to go on rabbit trails. And, and as I was studying and, and thinking and preparing, I'm like, I can't do a rabbit trail right off the get-go. Yes, I can. I'm, I'm about to. Just, I mean, that's the way it is. It's, it's interesting to me that over and over again, as we read through what Paul writes, he has this desire to be with whoever it is that he's writing to. Um, and I, I think that this, this idea of presence is very interesting. You know, we live in an age now when, I mean, we're, we're able to record and, and publish things on YouTube, and, and I'm thankful. Uh, I actually was just back there and saw that there's at least five or six different computers connected in, able to see and listen and take part in. And, and I'm grateful for that. I know that there are some people who are at home and they're, they're sick. They can't get out. They can't be here. Um, but there's this, this interesting idea. And as you study through Scripture, you see it not just in Paul's writing, but even if you go back to the Old Testament, you see this idea of presence or closeness come up over and over and over again. And I, I find that very fascinating. Um, in, in Exodus, when Moses leads the people out of Egypt... He's talking to God, and he's like, in, in essence, I, this is the Isaac version, God, if you don't go with us, if we don't have your presence, it's not worth going. Because he understood that the presence of God, that closeness was so important. You get into Deuteronomy, and there are times at which God says, to the, primarily to the men, but to the nation as a whole, you must come together at the temple or at the place that I have designated. Um, and there's, there's this idea of presence that comes up over and over and over again. And then even in the New Testament, we see it in the book of Hebrews. You, you all probably know it. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but do it more and more as you see the day approaching. And so this, this idea of presence is just fascinating to me. And Paul says, back here in First Timothy, I'm writing, hoping to come to you. Paul's desire was to be with Timothy. And there's something about that closeness, that fellowship. And so I, I started off this morning by saying I hate interrupting fellowship because that's one of the cool things about a church, that we can get together and, and just encourage one another, be together. That's why, I mean, we do men's breakfast on every Friday so that we can be together. And I understand not everybody's able to, but it's cool to, to have that presence together. And I think that that's one of the things that Paul's emphasizing there in verse 14. He wants to. He desires to be there. But, verse 15, in case I am delayed. Now, obviously, Paul was a very busy individual. He had all kinds of stuff going on. And he, he would go here and there and, and all kinds of different things that would prevent him from being there. And as I was digging into this one, I, I, we often think of being delayed as something else that prevents us from getting there, right? You're driving along and all of a sudden uh, the, the tire blows out and that delays you. Well, I don't think that that's what Paul's saying here. The, the word that he uses is actually um, an active word or, or that in case I delay myself. And I got thinking about that. I'm like, okay, Paul really, really wants to be with Timothy. And yet he's saying, I might not be there. Why would that be? What, what would prevent Paul from being there. And, you know, I, I got to thinking about, with this, this idea of presence, you know, um, my, my folks are planning to make a trip out here this summer, and I'm really looking forward to them being here. 
and, and to them getting here. And so, I mean, my kids are, are excited. They get to play with grandma and grandpa. I'm excited because I just love sitting and drinking coffee and talking to them. I mean, it, we're looking forward to that. And you can probably think of individuals that you would love to be with, but for some reason you're not. What are some of those reasons? What, are, what causes us sometimes not to be able to be with the people that we want to be with? Distance, obligations, jobs, other responsibilities. Life in general happens, right? I think what Paul's saying here is, is something that we actually, I know, I told you, this is just a rabbit trail. It's not a major theme in this. But I think that he's bringing out a point that we run into all the time. Life's busy. Life's crazy. And, and we have to make some decisions about what are we going to do? What are we going to spend our time with? Are we going to come together as a church and be able to interact and fellowship and encourage one another and, and all of that? Or do we have other things? And sometimes those other things are very, very important. I think that Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, I'm not going to be able to be there because he needed to be at other places. He had other responsibilities. As an apostle, God was sending him all over the world. You look at his missionary journeys, how many different places did, did Paul get to? He's all over the place. And he's saying, hey, Timothy, I really, really want to come be with you, but I can't. Not right now, because God has another job and another mission for me. And so, you know, I got, I got thinking about it, and I'm like, we, we have a great church. How awesome would it be if God were to take some of us and say, you know what, I have a mission for you. I want you to go over here. And, and we'd be looking at it like, man, I, I don't want to lose. I mean, I, I, if Dennis were to be called somewhere else, I'd have no one to pick on all the time. And yet, how awesome would it be if, if the reason that we can't get together is because we're serving him in other places, in other locations. And so, so Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you, but in case I'm delayed, I write. And, and we're going to look into what he's writing here in a moment. But like I said, just, just a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I was struck by that idea that you know, Paul had this desire to be with Timothy, and yet he recognized he might have to delay that arrival because God had other things that he wanted him to be doing. And so I, you know, the thought in my head is, how much should we desire to come together, to be together as a church? Probably quite a bit. And, and we've got all kinds of opportunities to do that. We've got the Sunday mornings, the guys get together Sunday evenings, ladies get together on Saturdays, we've got um, Wednesday evening Bible studies, we've got you know, opportunities for fellowship, for meals, and, and that's great, that's wonderful. If the reason that we can't get to those is because we are out serving God, or doing something that he has called us to. I know Friday mornings, there are sometimes guys are like, oh, I wish I could be there, but I have a job and I have to work. Hey, I get that. I fully understand. That's an obligation. Um, but our desire ought to be to be together so that we can worship together, so that we can encourage one another, so that we can be in God's word. And that's actually what Paul says. It says, in case I'm delayed, I'm writing these things, things that he would have told him face-to-face if he could have, but because he can't be there, I'm going to write these things. And so Paul sends this letter of 1 Timothy. Well, we've, like I said, we've already seen half of it so far. We've got more to come. But let's go back and do just a real quick review of what have we covered so far in the book of 1 Timothy. 
I know it's been a few weeks, maybe challenging. What do you remember? The, the, un, unfortunately, this is like, okay, how good a preacher is Isaac? Do you actually know? No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> okay, one of the big ones, chapter 2, was pray. Pray for leaders. Pray for governments. Pray for, ooh. Anybody else have a challenge with that one? I know I, know I read that one. I'm like, oh, do I have to? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, I should. But why? Why do we pray? Do you remember that part? Okay, partly because God tells us to, partly to give glory to God. But what is God's desire? I, I, I'm sorry, I can't hear. Do what? You've got a good, loud and thunderous voice. I could hear that one over all of it. Say it again louder. For all men to be saved. That's really the underlying principle of all of what Paul writes here in First Timothy, is, is that that desire of God is that all men would be saved, that everyone would be saved. And, and he's dealing with some specific instructions about how to make that happen. And I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different things. One of the ways is that we pray for people. Anybody remember any of the others? Hmm? Love. That we love one another. Okay. Okay. The, the qualifications of elders and deacons, right? The, the leadership that we have in the church affects our ability to function as a church, affects our ability to be good ministers of what God expects. And, and here in a moment, we're going to see that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Our leadership has an effect on whether or not we're able to declare the truth, to show the truth, to live that way. And so the church has a huge impact on, on how we are able to ensure that all men hear the gospel and that they can be saved. And our roles as men and women okay, our individual roles. And at home. And at home, yeah. So that one, that one applies not just in this assembly, but also you know, the way that we interact, the way that we live. I think I saw another hand. Okay, that is another major, major uh, theme as you go through this book is looking out for false teachers, false doctrine, people that are trying to lead astray and opposite. And that's one of the main reasons that a big qualification of elders is the ability to teach. They have to be able to help people learn what is true and what is not, what is right and what is wrong. Deacons need to understand it, they need to know it, they need to grasp it, but elder, or overseers have to be able to proclaim that. I think I saw another hand over here. Uh, that we all, Christ, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the, the building here isn't really the church, it's the people. And that those, those overseers and those deacons are there to support and to encourage and to help develop the others in the assembly so that we can be who God wants us to be. So that we can um, share the gospel so that people can get saved. That's, that's an ultimate um, goal. And that was back in uh, chapter 2, verse 4. God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Another key verse that, that I had noticed was back in chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And I think that all of those things that we've, 
we've briefly mentioned, I'm, I'm had to go back last night and just read through the entire book again. I don't know if anybody else has done that. I, w- I hope so. I would encourage you. We're, we're halfway through the book. It's really easy. I noticed myself. I've kind of gotten further and further away from some of the earlier things. and like, okay, let's go back, reread, just straight through. And now, when I said, when we first started, I said it'll only take you 12 minutes, I think, something like that, 15. And, and someone came to me and was like, I don't read that fast, Isaac. I'm like, okay, if it takes 20 minutes, 25 minutes, whatever it is, it takes about two to three minutes a chapter. So if it takes you a whole week reading just five minutes a day, great. I want to encourage you, go back and, and reread all the way through again. Because we've been going through and, and trying to look at the trees. And, and sometimes, because Isaac goes on rabbit trails, you know, we'll, we'll focus on, in on one thing and we'll miss some other stuff. So I want to encourage you, go back and, and reread through all of it. And, and see some of those things that maybe, maybe I missed and we, we passed over. Or maybe we talked about and then it's just been a couple of weeks. But if you, if you would take the time, read through all of it. And then you'll, you'll see that next week, some of what we're getting into are those false doctrines. Are those major issues, those problems? But this week, this week, I want to look at some of the not false doctrines, some of the key, core, major principles that Paul is emphasizing. And, and as I was looking at this, one of the, the images or the ideas that came to my mind, um, how many of you like money? I know, I know. Gear shift seems odd, but how many of you like money? You ever, you know what um, a counterfeit bill is? Okay, do you know how banks figure out what's counterfeit and what's not? They study what is the real so that anything that doesn't match the real, they know is false. Because there's always something coming up. There's always a new way that, that counterfeiters develop to be able to, to fake real money. But the, the bank tellers, one of the things that they have to study is what does the real thing look like? And I think that's what Paul's doing here. We're going to look at a couple of verses that emphasize true doctrine, major theologies, big points. And then he's going to get into some of the false doctrines that we've got to watch out for, we've got to be careful for. But it's really easy to get sidetracked on, on arguing about all these little false doctrines that come up. And they come up all the time. Um, here in a bit, we're going to talk about some of the, the history of the church and, and different councils and confessions and things that have come up over time. And all of those come up because there's false doctrine that's trying to get into the church. And yet, how do we ensure that we have good doctrine? How do we ensure that we have true doctrine? Well, we have to know what is true. We have to know what is right. So, in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul's writing these things so that they'll know certain things, but not just so that they know it up here, but so that they know how to act, how to put it into practice. What are they supposed to do as a result of that. One, one of the things that I say quite often um, is that, that head knowledge isn't all that there is. We need to put it into practice. 
And I think partly because that was drummed into me at, at seminary, you know, it's really easy. You study, you study, you study, and you think you've got it all figured out. And you think it's all up there in your head. And then you realize, wait a minute, I may know it, but am I living it? Am I putting it into practice? Now, don't get me wrong. It's important to know the right things. Um, and I made a note of the verse because I knew I'd forget it if I didn't. Philippians 4, 8 Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good, I, I'm getting them in the wrong order, I'm sorry. Whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's any praise, think on these things. The, the things that we think are very, very important. But if we just allow it to be head knowledge without putting it into practice, then what's the point? What's the value? And so what, what Paul is saying here to Timothy because he's dealing with some false doctrine, because he's dealing, he's, he's in a church where there's all kinds of stuff going on. And Paul is saying, hey, I'm writing this so that you will know in your head certain things about how you need to act, about what you need to do. So what are those things? Well, we, we just talked about several of them. And Paul's going to continue on and give others but one of the main things that he points out is how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And I thought that phrasing was really interesting because a couple of things. One, it's that family idea, right? Now, we don't do it so much in, in modern day, but 50 years ago and so, it was always brother and sister and, and family and the, the household and all of that kind of thing. That was a, a way of talking that emphasize that fact that the body of Christ is a family. And, and again, we have fellowship, we have interaction, we go to a house together. I mean, those are all good things. Well, that's one of the, the things that's going on. Another that, that I found interesting is in, in this chapter, we've just seen that same idea twice. And it's how overseers rule their households and how deacons lead their households. And so I, I thought it was interesting that he brings up both of those um, ideas of the overseer has a household. And, and when we look at and watch how he leads his house, that has impact on how he will lead the church. And when we look at the deacon and how he serves his house, that's how he's going to serve the church. And now Paul's saying, hey, I'm, I'm writing these things so that you understand how to behave in the household of God. It's not just that, you know, these are, are regular things, but how not only that you, you ought to, but that you must conduct yourself in the household of God. Now, we were, we were talking uh, Wednesday night a little bit about the idea of, of our houses and how Husbands are supposed to lead the house, right? I mean, that's, that's scriptural, that's godly. And how husbands are supposed to lead and discipline and train their children, right? And, and Wednesday night, we talked just briefly a little bit about this idea that, that sometimes it's really easy to be a dad that just sits back on the couch and relaxes and lets things happen and go its way, right? And, and it's easy, it ought not be. I think one of the things that that Paul's saying here is God is establishing, and he, he, as the ultimate father, as the good father, as the best that there is, he's establishing, hey, these are the ground rules. You ever, you ever hear or say, not in my house? 
you know, this, this behavior is not going to happen in my... Well, I think that's part of what he's doing here. He's saying there are certain rules in this house, and that's how it's going to be. And you need to obey those. You need to follow those. And dads, when you lay down the law and you make those rules, is it to be mean and, and rude and, and oppressive? Or is it to help them be who they want, ought to be, who they need to be? I'm going to guess it's the, the latter. It's the, the encourage and develop and help them. A lot of rules for small children are to prevent them from getting hurt, to prevent injury, right? Don't touch the stove because it's hot. Well, but mom, I want to touch it. Well, it, it's going to hurt you. That's why we have that rule. Do what? You let them touch. Actually, uh, I'll admit I have a tendency to do the same. Like, I, I told you, it's hot. Well, <laughs> I, I'm not going to get too much into the doing. <laughs> they'll only do it once and then they'll learn, right? Well, <clears throat> we're getting way off on that one. God is, is laying down certain rules about how it's supposed to be in his household. And, and yeah, I think sometimes he does say, not a good idea. And then he lets us go off and do our own thing. And then we learn. It's like, oh, yep. Yep, you're right. You're right. That's not a good idea. Um, but you know, as I was as I was thinking about this, and I I don't know about you, but when I read through Scripture, I try and put it into things that I understand that that I can interact with, and 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 I have to be careful with that. We we talk about there's the the process of understanding Scripture is you observe what the text says, you interpret what that means, and then you apply it. And, and I don't know about anybody else. I have a tendency to want to rush straight to the application. And, and I think that that's kind of a normal thing when people interact. You've got to step back and you've got to understand, well, what does it say? What, what specifically is it saying? Okay, now, how do I understand that? Okay, now, what do I do with that? But in looking at this idea, I got thinking about my, my house, my family, and I, I have an amazing wife who teaches and trains our kids. She's a stay-at-home mom and is able to homeschool and stuff. I'm like, okay, so God established the rules, and then he gave the overseers and the deacons, kind of like the mom, to, to enforce, to lead, to guide, to train in those things. I wonder if that works. Now, I, I don't necessarily know uh, if that's exactly what's going on. Probably not, but that's the way that Isaac's crazy messed up mind kind of puts this together is like, okay, God is telling Paul, write these things so that they understand how the household of God is supposed to function. And then he puts certain people in positions, those overseers and those deacons, to make sure that that happens, to lead in that process, to, to guide all of what's going on. Why? For what, for what reason does he do that? Well, he says, I write these things so you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, I know I already did one side trail. We're going to take another one real quick. This idea of the living God. So the church isn't just an assembly. That, that's what the word means is assembly. It's a gathering together. It's not just that people get together. There's all kinds of ways in which that happens. And, and that's good. You know, there's community centers, there's events, there's concerts. There, I mean, all kinds of stuff. That's, that's fine. But the church is something different. It's something unusual. It's something special. And the first descriptor that, that 
um, Paul gives is it's the church of the living God. Now, I, I honed in on that, and maybe, maybe I get sidetracked and, and go on rabbit trails and follow squirrels all over the place. When you're, when you're reading the Bible, I encourage you to do that sometimes. Actually, it's, it's really fun. And I, I honed in on this idea of the living God, and I started looking it up. How often does that phrase come up? Any, any guesses? Like 30 times throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again. And I, I started digging into it. Um, and and I, would, I would encourage you, grab a Strong's and, or... Um, What's, I, I keep talking about a website, Blue Letter Bible. Uh, check out on that one. Type in Living God and see how many times it comes up. It's, it's maybe 28. But that phrase comes up over and over again. And I, I think that it's significant. In Deuteronomy, um, it's emphasized to them. Uh, Moses emphasizes to the people that there is something special and unique about them because they have the living God leading them and guiding them and showing them which way to go. You guys remember the story of the Exodus, right? Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. That it's not just some dead idol that they wander around in the wilderness. It's God himself, the living God, who leads them. And Moses is emphasizing to them, you are unique, you are special, you're different because of the living God. Uh, when you get into the book of Joshua, they're going into the promised land and they're about to cross over the Jordan. And in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10, the people are reminded that they are following the living God who is, is represented there by the, the Ark of the Covenant. As the priests carry it, they step into the Jordan River and what does the Jordan do? It opens up. Like, they're, they're not just following some box of gold that, that they're worshiping this golden image that people had made. No, they are following, they are serving the living God. There's, there's another one that comes up. Um, I, I mentioned we're going to be doing some stuff with, with kids and, and teaching them some of the Bible and, and stories. I love, I love Bible stories. We, we do have to recognize, as we talked about in Sunday school, it's not just a story like a fun thing. It's like actual historical accounts of what God has done. One of the really cool ones, you guys remember David and Goliath? Anybody ever learned that one as a kid? Only a boy named David, only a little... Okay, anyway. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David gets indignant because Goliath has defied the armies of the living God. And, and David makes this proclamation. He says, hey, God helped me beat a lion and a bear... And this, that same God, the living God, he's not dead, he's not unable to function. The living God is going to give me victory over this giant as well. See, do what? Over, over this, yeah, he, he uses a little bit harsher terms. I, I won't deny that one. Let's skip forward. I, I actually want to turn to Matthew chapter 16. This idea of, of the living God doesn't just happen in the Old Testament where they are dealing with um, dead idols. And over and over and over again, the people of Israel get, get drawn away to follow these dead idols instead of the living God. But in Matthew chapter 16, um, I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. It says, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he began asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter. You guys remember Peter, right? He's always getting himself into trouble. He's always say, speaking out of turn. He's messing stuff. I mean, he's just, he, he's just out there. That's part of why I enjoy him. He's, he's just real. He's out there. Simon Peter answered, said, thou art the Christ. Now, that's an important phrase. It's the Messiah. It's the promised one from the Old Testament. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on and he talks about how that based on that statement, on that foundation stone, this idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, based on that, he's going to establish the church. That's the principle. That's the, the, the cornerstone, as it were. This idea of the living God, it it's, goes all the way through um, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's, it's putting into contrast this fact that whether it's the Old Testament and all of these nations around Israel, whether it's where Paul is and he's dealing with the, the Greek mythology and, or the Roman gods and, and emblems and all of that, doesn't matter. The God that we serve, the God that that is declaring these things, the, the God of the church is a specific, unique, different God. He is alive. He is living. He's active. He's capable in a way that, that all of these others aren't, which I, I found interesting. Uh, Jim and I did not coordinate at all, but if you were here for Sunday school, we watched a little video that kind of talked about some of the, the fact that in our culture around us today, you say God, and they're like, okay, which one? You want to talk about Buddha or Muhammad or, or Allah? or I, I don't even remember all of them. And, and it's like, no, we need to talk about a specific God. Well, Paul does that here. He says, I want you to know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So God, our, the, the God that we follow, the God that we serve, is unique. He's special. He's distinguished from all others, distinguished from the idols of ancient Israel, distinguished from the idols of Greek mythology, distinguished from the Roman deities. God is different. He says, back, back to First uh, Timothy. He says, I want people to know how they ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We've got a few builders in here, right? If, if you've only built like a birdhouse, that still counts. And anybody ever built something? Okay. You, you guys know what it takes to build something, right? What do you have to start with? A, 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 <laughs> a lot of money for materials, maybe. A plan and a foundation, right? We actually, again, during Sunday school, talked about laying that foundation. I, I didn't know that that would be the video this morning, but that was really cool. Laying a foundation is, is a requirement in order to build something. And if you don't have a good, solid, sturdy foundation, it doesn't work. Well, it's not just... That's, that's what this idea of support is. It's, it's the, the ground, the base layer. But there's also the pillars. Well, well what are pillars? 
in, in construction? Supports, right? They hold up the walls, they hold up the ceiling, they hold up the roof. And, and as I was thinking on this, I'm like, okay, he's, he's probably, in Ephesus, there was a, one of the great wonders of the world. It was one of the temples that had these columns, these pillars that, that held the roof up. And it was, a, it was beautiful. And, and I wonder, I don't, it doesn't specify like beautiful pillars versus structural pillars or anything like that. But I, I kind of wonder if maybe there's a decorative aspect to this. Because if you, if you study any kind of construction of that era, the columns uh, in Roman construction were very precise. They were, they were measured to be artistically beautiful as well as functional in supporting whatever is up on top of them. Well, here, Paul's saying that the church, the assembly of the living God, the church is the pillar and support. It's the foundation. Now, obviously, we, you, I'm sure, remember from Ephesians 2 that Christ is the chief cornerstone, right? And, and that the church is based on Christ, and the apostles form, for, for our context, I'd say you ever lay a row of blocks or bricks, you get that first one. Any, anybody else, bricklayer, ever laid bricks? Okay, a couple of you. If, if you've, do I? You've laid bricks before too? Okay. If, if you've ever done it, let me tell you, that first row is the hardest. Because that first block is the most important. If you don't get it square, plumb, and true, just right, you're not going to be able to build a straight wall. It's not going to work. And, and I hear some chuckles from people who've done it. But then that first row is, in essence, that's Christ is the chief cornerstone. And then that row is the apostles. They established the foundation of the start of the church. But then Paul here is saying that the church is the pillar and support. So finishing out that foundation and building the structure that upholds the truth that supports the truth. That's, that's what he's saying, that we as a church ought to be doing. Now, now, we already established that Paul is encouraging Timothy to remember that there's false doctrine. There's things that are leading astray and going the wrong way, and that's a problem. But we as a church have a responsibility to uphold what is true, what is right. Those, those things that I referenced um, in Philippians 4.8, whatsoever things are true and lovely and honest and of good report, all of that, think on those things. That's part of what Paul's saying here is that we need to uphold and support the truth. That's what the church exists for. That's why it's so important that we have good, godly leadership in the church so that we have a solid base and a solid foundation to support and uphold the truth. That's why it's important that as, as we went through, women are given particular specific roles. Men are given particular and specific roles. There's a way that all of that functions. We're all working towards good works. We need to not be distracting from in, in our appearance and the way that we act and the things that we do needs to not distract away from, but instead focus people on the truth and who God is and what he's done. We do that through our good works primarily, but... We also do it by verse 16, by common confession. Now, that phrasing, um, if, if you've been around like historical churches or high churches of any kind, there's, there's an idea of confessions, right? 
You ever heard of creeds and confessions, anybody? Okay, you know uh, vaguely what I'm talking about. I don't think that that's quite what's going on here. Now, I'm, I'm going to be making a, a reference and a connection to, because there, there is some, some ideas and some good concepts that we need to dig in with. But that word, that phrase, is by common agreement. Um, it, it's known. It's obvious. It's something that we all can, can agree with. The, the phrase is by saying the same word. I mean, that, that's what the, the word itself means. We say the same thing about this, about what follows. Great is the mystery of godliness. Um, we looked at last week that the deacons must grasp, must hold on to the mystery. They need to understand it, right? Well, this is what that mystery is. What, what is the mystery? He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Now, yeah, I, I was a little bit worried that all of the other stuff would take me too long and we wouldn't have enough time to dig into this. We've got time. We're, we're on, on track. We're doing good. There's so much packed into this. And I think before we get into the specifics of what that means, I think we need to, to consider just a minute of, of what's going on here. You guys have sung songs, right? Anybody ever uh, read poetry or looked at any of, of that a little bit? Is it easier to memorize things when it's set to a tune and, and has some rhythm and rhyme to it or when it's just random things? Obviously when it's rhythmic, right? Paul wrote this in a way that is structured. It's six lines and they all have, I knew I'd forget the word. Kids, help me out. When the first sound of the word rhymes, it's not rhyming, it's, Alliterating, thank you. I knew he'd, he'd be able to help me out. That's why I didn't write it down, because I knew he was here. But anyway, so you, you guys know what a rhyme is, right? The last phrase, well, alliteration is where the first phrase sounds the same. In Greek, all of these do that. And I, I think what Paul's doing is saying, hey, Timothy, I want you guys to have an easily remembered, easily spoken phrasing, almost like a poem, um, some, some people even say that this was a hymn that they put to music and were able to sing. But I, I want you to have something that you can easily declare the, this core truth, this key principle that needs to be understood. Now, I mentioned that there, there, throughout church history, there have been creeds and confessions and things of that nature. And there, there are some people who are like, no, no, you should never look at those. They're terrible because man wrote them. I'm like, to some extent, I agree. They are men's words. But you look at history and you look through why were people writing these. They were writing them because something was going on and they're like, no, 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 no. You need to understand this is a solid statement. Um, and so on the, the handouts that I had back there that some people have, have grabbed and been looking at, <clears throat> I've, I kind of mentioned the Apostles' Creed. That's one of the early ones in which they put together just some simple declarations. We believe this. And, and all that they're trying to do, it, it is men, all that they're trying to do is say, I believe that the Bible is the word of God and here are certain nuggets that, that we're going to pull out of that so that everybody knows, I believe in God, God the Father, the immortal, invisible, 
always been, always will be all-powerful God. That's who I believe in. Not these other gods. I believe God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. I I mentioned some of these are set up to be easily memorizable. There are churches that that go through and and will say those week after week or whatever. I, I don't necessarily think that that's a good idea or required because it is easy to get distracted and be like, oh, well, that's that's the word of God. No, 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 that's men's words trying to make it simple, trying to make it understandable and relatable. But they're supposed to be. And this is where I encourage you, take a look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Westminster uh, Confession. Even the modern one is called the Baptist Faith and Mission. And that's, that's what, like, Southern Baptists, I'll, I'll read through them again in a minute. Um, that's what, like, Southern Baptists declare, we believe these things. Read through those and compare them to Scripture. How accurate are those? But there's one more that I want you to, to consider. It's actually our church statement of faith. It's exactly the same idea, where we try and bring together, okay, we believe the Bible. First and foremost, what the Bible says, that's what matters. Not men's ideas, not men's thoughts about those ideas. But how do we put that together in a nice, simple little phrasing so that everyone can, can read it and compare what we believe with what the Scripture says and understand it? Well, we did that in our statement of faith, and they are back here right in front of the sound booth. I would encourage you, if you haven't read through it in a long time, you probably ought to. It'd be a good idea. The very first one, we believe, and this is what we as a church, I know I'm, I'm way off on the rabbit trail, that's okay. What we as a church, we as a fellowship or an assembly say, we believe the Bible is the word of God. It is without error in the original manuscripts and has been preserved by God in its verbal and complete inspiration. It is our supreme and final authority for all truth, for all time, and all people. There's a lot packed into that. And you're not going to find a single verse that says that. But you'll notice at the bottom it lists out several verses that then explain, okay, well, where did we get this idea of inspiration? Well, that's 2 Timothy 3.16. Where do we get this idea that it's for all people, for all time, that it's the final authority? Well, that comes out of 1 Peter. Where do we get, and I would encourage you, grab one of these. If you, if you have one, read it again. If not, they're back there. If we run out of copies, I'll, I'll get more. But read through it. What do we proclaim as a church that this is what we believe? And does that line up with Scripture? Now, obviously, I would say I think pretty much, yes. It's, it's really good. It's really accurate. It is still men's words, but it's men's words trying to capture this. And and how do we understand it? How do we live that out? Yes, sir. What is? If... If they align with what the Bible says, then yes, they're, they're accurate and true and can be very useful. In fact, the songs that we sang, uh, Jim already made mention of this, the songs that we sing as a church, we try to make sure that they line up with Scripture. Well, why? Because they're easily memorizable. Uh, I think it was Friday morning at men's breakfast, we got talking and we got a song stuck in our head. And it took all day to get that song out of my head. Thanks a lot, Dennis. And it wasn't, it wasn't a bad song, don't, don't get me wrong. But it wasn't a, a godly song. It wasn't a song that focused me on Christ. 
And so, you know, I think even to that, we understand, you know, our, our minds work a certain way. And I think, I, I'm way off on the rabbit trail. Let's bring it back in. I think that that's part of what Paul's doing here, is he's giving Timothy a nice, simple, short thing to declare certain truths. And as he declares those, there's so much more packed into them. Um, it's not a full explanation. It's a summary. It's, it's systematizing all of this together so that it's easy to declare it and say, I believe this. Okay, what, what does that mean? Well, let's spend three or four hours digging into the scripture and understanding that. Good, good example that, that comes up. Um, I actually was, was discussing with someone today. Point number 13 on ours, uh, in, our, in our church statement, we believe in a pre-wrath rapture of the church. Well, that's a huge thing that, that you've got to unpack and dig into. That's why you ought to be coming on Wednesday nights, so that you can learn more about that, because um, Pastor Jack does an amazing job explaining that in ways that I, I can't. Uh, he's, he's spent a lot of time and, and delved in, and he's trying to bring all the different passages and all the different scriptures together so that we understand, okay, we say that we believe that, but what does that mean? How do we understand that? How do we, how do we then live that? What effect should that have on us as followers of Christ? And if you missed this last Wednesday, you missed out. But it was recorded, so you can check it out on YouTube, which, again, I love the fact that we have those but we've got to get together. Anyway, back to the passage. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. First question is, who's this talking about? Jesus. Jesus himself. Now, I, I will acknowledge that there is, this is one of those uh, where there's a textual variant or in, in the original manuscripts, there's a little bit of a, a okay, what, what specific word? Now, it, it's either God or he who, and because they're, they're phrased very similar or written very similar, but you start digging into what does it say, it's obvious it's referring to Christ. There's, there's no doubt, no question. So who was revealed in the flesh? Well, Jesus. Now, I told you that each of these little phrases packs so much into one little thing. What does it mean that Jesus was revealed in the flesh? It's, it's an open question. Go ahead, guys. Born of a virgin, that he was a man. Yeah. Uh, we call that, in, in the theology terms, we call that the incarnation. That, that Jesus became a human being. The humanity of Christ is actually one of the first... Uh, issues that came up and became a, a major church do, uh, doctrinal conflict. And I, I mentioned a couple of, of uh, creeds. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed exist because we've got to understand who Jesus is. And if Jesus is the foundation, the bedrock of Christianity, of the church, we need to understand who he is. Well, he was revealed in the flesh. He was incarnate. He became a man. Well, what difference does that make? All the difference in the world. If Jesus did not become a man, he could not die on the cross to pay the penalties for your sins or for mine. If Jesus did not become a man, 
all of the Old Testament prophecies about the son of David couldn't be fulfilled. If Jesus did not become a man, he could not be the kinsman redeemer that the Old Testament taught. I mean, the, the amount of theology packed into this one little thing, we could have taken the entire time just digging into what is the incarnation? What is this idea that Jesus is revealed in the flesh? Paul's saying, hey, when you are a church, you need to understand that there are certain key core principles. Don't allow any um, counterfeiting. Don't allow any error to come in. And one of the main ones is that Jesus was revealed in the flesh, the incarnation. He was truly man, completely and totally, 100% he was a man. But what's the next line? He was vindicated in the spirit. That, that, that idea of vindicated is justified. It's, it's that same word, that same idea, but it, it carries with Jesus a little bit different of a uh, focus because Jesus didn't have to be justified from sin because he never knew sin. He was perfect and sinless. But it's still that judicial term in which the, the spirit kind of goes into the courtroom and proves beyond a doubt who he is. And I, I think that we've, we, we end up picking up a second major doctrine here, and that's the deity of Christ. Now, you start digging into who, who is Jesus. He is 100% man, yes, but he's also 100% God. And, and we step back and we're like, well, how, how does that work? It's a good question. That, that takes tons of study and digging into scriptures. But we come to understand that if Jesus is man and Jesus is God, deity, that gives him the ability to do things that no one else has ever been able to do. He can live the perfect life because of his deity. He can die a death because of his humanity. And all of these begin to fit together to form, like I said, the, the base rock of what is the church? What is our reason for existence? What is our reason for being? So how did the Holy Spirit bear witness to him? Uh, first and foremost, we, we see it happening um, at his baptism. You guys remember the baptism of Christ? John he takes him down into the water and as he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit landing on him, proving this is somebody special, this is somebody unique. Uh, beyond that, we, we see at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Holy Spirit validates or proves this is the, the Christ, the Messiah. This is God's Son who is here. We already read a declaration by Peter that, that he is um, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, ultimately, though, and most notably, and, and probably the most important, most significant, is at the resurrection. The fact that Jesus Christ, as a man, died, but was vindicated by the Holy Spirit in that he rose again from the grave on the third day, that proves beyond a doubt who is Jesus. He's somebody different. He's somebody you need to pay attention to, dig into, look at this. This is important. This is significant. This matters. He's vindicated in the Spirit, beheld by angels. Now, I'll admit, this one, it, it took me a while. This, this threw me for a loop, trying to figure this out. And, and I think part of it is, 
because angels are so misunderstood. They, they pop up here and there, and a lot of people, a lot of the world around us try and, and put things on angels and talk about them in, in ways that just, they don't match up with Scripture. It doesn't make sense. Um, but as I, as I was digging into it, I think what's going on here is the fact that, that who Christ is is of a very public nature. And even the angels get to see this. It's, it's shown visible, made known to all. And the angels are part of that. Um, we see them show up at the birth of Christ. They, they make the announcement to the shepherds in Luke 2. We see angels minister to Christ after his temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Um, we see that, that somehow in Luke 12 that there's, they will be uh, witnesses when Christ confesses that we are or are not his followers. The angels are there in some way bearing witness to this. Uh, we even find on the cross that, that Christ could have called a, a legion of angels to come pull him off. They were watching. They were ready. And, and you know, of course, Isaac's mind goes off on this rabbit trail. Like, I, I bet you they were all kitted up. They were swords and shields and full body armor. They were ready to go. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. They were ready. They were there. They were on call. So they saw everything that happened. This isn't, isn't some hidden thing. Now, we refer to it as the mystery of the gospel. And yet Paul is, is clearly saying, hey, it's not, it's not that it's hidden. It's not this secretive thing. It's, it's that this was something that in the Old Testament wasn't well known. It wasn't declared. It wasn't made public. But now it's been made public. It's been known he was revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated or proven by the Spirit. He was beheld by angels. Well, then what? And that that's kind of forms the first, first verse of the poem or of the hymn. The second part then, the second set of three lines says that he was proclaimed among the nations. Like I said, this isn't something that was hidden or unknown. This was, uh, you, you start opening the book of Acts and very, very quickly he's, the word spreads all over the place. Um, Day of Pentecost, there are people from all kinds of different countries and nations. And Jesus had told his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim these things. Let it be known. And he does that in a couple of different times and ways. He sends people out for, for different reasons and different ways and all of that. But the, the word gets out very, very quickly and very, very broadly, which was what was intended but not only was he proclaimed among the nations, na- nations being ethnos, like everybody, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to everybody. But beyond that, the next line says he was believed on in the world. See, it's not just some story, some fable. It's something true, something that people can believe in, put their, their trust, their hope, their reliance on. I think uh, one, of my, one of my first sermons I, I brought a chair up here, and I, I talked about, okay, you can, you can demonstrate your faith by whether you sit down in the chair or not, whether you trust it or not. That's what, that's what believing is. That's what faith is, putting your reliance on something. You say, well, okay, it, it's a chair. It's going to hold me up. Well, you can say that, but do you actually do that? Do you rest in the chair? Well, here Paul's saying he was proclaimed among the nations, he was believed on in the world. It had effect. It took effect very, very quickly. Last, last one, though. He was taken up into glory. I think this one is, again, huge. Now, all, all of these have major things, and I've, 
I've skimmed over it. I'm sure that I've missed little bits of it. But this last one, he was taken up into glory. My mind immediately jumps to Acts chapter 1. And you'll recall in Acts chapter 1, um, Christ died. His, his disciples, this is leading up to and in. His, his disciples are lost. They're worried. He raises again from the dead. And he travels around and he talks to a few different people and to different, different folks. But then he says, all right, I'm leaving. And he, he had already prepared them with this in, back in uh, John 14. But he says, I'm leaving. But I'm, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to give you the power to be my disciples, to be my, my messengers in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. And so I think that part of what's contained in this is the fact that Christ ascended into heaven, which is significant, but in that ascension, he also sends his Holy Spirit for his church to have the ability to serve him. But in ascending, he also made promises that I will come again Christ will return. I think all of this combines together to be a major point in that this idea of taken up into glory isn't the end. Christ still has plans. He's coming again. And and like I said, we, we mentioned all of the, the future things. We call it eschatology, end time stuff. All of that is based on this one little phrase, he was taken up into glory. And so... I think what Paul's doing here is giving a very simple, basic understanding of some core principles. And there's so much more to it, but I, I, I don't think that Paul, or I, sorry, I don't think that Timothy missed the idea that this is an easily, remember, easily memorizable, easily quotable phrasing so that he can proclaim to the world the foundation the, the cornerstone of what is the church, and that is Christ. Who is Christ? All of this is contained in a simple memory phrase that could be declared by common confession. I think that what Paul is, is giving them is something that they could memorize and think on and meditate on. And I've, I've talked a little bit about how that, you know, our, our music... It, it gets stuck in your head and you remember things and, and it recalls and it's easy to memorize some of those things and to have them come back up into your mind and, and to think on those things. And so in the, in the handout, one of the questions that I ask are what, what are some theologically significant verses that you've memorized? I think that that's, that that's important, that that's valuable. That if we, if we memorize scripture and we recall those and we remember, okay, these major truths, these really important things that we need to be aware of. Um, throughout scripture, there are lots of these things that are, are really easy. Um, and I had a list of them and I'm not, I'm not seeing it right now, I'm sorry. Uh, in, in, we, we referenced one, Peter's declaration of who Christ is. Um, Earlier during Sunday school, we talked about 1 Corinthians 15 and what is the gospel. That's a big one. I think this one here. But then there are a lot of those that people have put to music. They've put into uh, simple, memorable phrases. And so this today, we're going to do something slightly different. Um, rather than having the, the band come back up and 
lead us in singing. I've got a song. It's a modern uh, declaration. And it's same idea. It's called Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. You may, you may be familiar with it. You may have heard of it. Um, it's by the Gettys. Very good uh, group of individuals. We're going to play that here in just a moment. And I want you, if you know the song, go ahead, join in. It's going to have the words you can listen to. But I want to encourage you to take a little bit of time and just ponder, what, who is Christ? Who is he? What difference does that make? Paul was giving Timothy this easily memorizable, easily focused on phrase that gives us certain aspects of who Christ is. And there's so much packed into that. This, this song that we're going to listen to and potentially in the weeks ahead do some singing of, Christ our hope in life and death, asks the simple question, who is our hope? Why do we have hope? Well, the simple answer is Christ. And it's not just this simple little phrase to throw out there. There's so much depth and theology that's built into that answer. So as we, as we watch this, I want to encourage you, think on those things. What, what do you know of Christ? And maybe you say, you know what? I don't know much about him at all. Well, come talk to me. We'll have an opportunity to dig in and, and interact. That's why we do the Bible studies. That was why we do the, the Sunday gatherings, all of that. Maybe you say, you know what? I've known him for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Great. Can you step back and pause and think about who is he? What has he done? And what difference does that make in my life. Would you please?
Christ is our hope. He is our focus. He is our cornerstone. He is our foundation. I want to encourage you as you head out, ponder who is Christ. The Bible declares who he is. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you have given us a hope. You have given us your son. Lord, it's so easy to become distracted and to think on all kinds of other things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know the truth of your word, primarily as it focuses on who Christ is. Not just that we have lots and lots of head knowledge, but so that we put it into practice, so that we know how to conduct ourselves, how to live in your house, in the church. Lord, help us to be a church that loves you, that loves your word, that loves your people, so that we can live for you. Guide us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here. You are dismissed.